Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 169 with Mark Cuban of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I'm the CEO and host of Founder Magazine and also this show, the Founder Podcast. If you're new to this podcast, we interview some of the greatest entrepreneurs of our generation and uh, I extract as much gold from them as I can to really understand what it takes to build and grow a successful business from people that are either number one or two in their industry. And this person that I'm speaking to today, the one and only Mark Cuban, has, you know, he's he's at the top of his game. Uh, he's an incredible founder. He's one of the richest people in the world. He's in the category of the billionaires. And, uh, you know, he sold his company broadcast.com to Yahoo, which they later IPO'd. And uh, yeah, he made over a billion dollars from from selling it to Yahoo, which is an incredible amount of money, incredible deal. And uh, this was a fantastic conversation. I know you guys are going to love this one. We talked about hiring. We talked about firing. We talked about also strategies on investing and why he believes that you actually shouldn't raise capital unless you really need to. And also, we actually had a fascinating conversation around his thoughts on sacrificing profit for growth uber's growth strategy oh man this one you guys are in for an absolute treat me and mark actually really hit it off like a house on fire and i think you guys are really really going to enjoy this one this is probably one of my favorite interviews to date so guys if you are enjoying the founder podcast please do take the time to leave us a review 
It would help more than you can imagine. Uh, I know you guys also must have friends that are founders that are building businesses just like yourself. So please, if you can, just let them know. Let them know about this awesome podcast, this episode in particular, and share it with them. I know they're going to get a ton of gold from this like you are. And then just lastly, make sure you do check out founder.com, F-O-U-N-D-R.com. It's where everything that we're up to, it's where everything lives. You'll see everything we've got going on. We're working on a lot of different things. I really am on a mission to build a household name, entrepreneurial brand that serves tens of millions of people every single week. And I can't do it without you guys. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your earbuds with me. And now let's jump into the show. Okay, so the first question um, that I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job? <laughs> Which job? Um, you know, I've been an entrepreneur my entire life. And, and so I started my first company when I was 12, selling garbage bags door to door. And I just never stopped from there. And today I, I do more investing than anything else. But I also run the um, Dallas Mavericks NBA team that I bought in January of 2000. Yeah, look, um, if anybody, yeah, a lot of people know who you are. You're, you're a very well-known entrepreneur in the space. I'm not going to ask you so much about your background. I have a lot of, I guess, interesting questions that um, I'm going to be quite selfish and ask you. I'm okay. Curious, I'm curious, uh, as a you know a, a billionaire, is, is it possible to have it all? Yeah, I mean, look, I love my life. Um, you know, I would say someone's got to be the luckiest guy in the world. I'm just glad it's me. And you know, I have the same worries about my family and my kids and how I raise them, you know, what to grow up to be in their health. But outside the normal stuff that, that money can't buy, <laughs> there's nothing bad about being rich. It's really nice. It's really fun. And I'm glad I'm rich. Awesome. And can you tell us about some of like your darkest times, um, you know, since, since you have built such, so many successful businesses, like, Sure. A really great story, just so people can draw that, you know, there are so many tough times as well. I want to hear about the dark side of entrepreneurship. Sure. You know, one of my first companies was a company called Microsolutions. I was 24, 25. And what we did was we sold PCs and connected them to local area networks and wrote software for them. And there were four of us in the company at the time. And we, we were chugging along. We'd been in business for two years. We had $84,000 in the bank. And we had myself, a partner, a friend who worked for me, and a girl that was our receptionist, slash answered the phone, slash would run errands, that type of thing. And one day we get a call from the bank saying that somebody who worked for us, who was supposed to be going and depositing payroll checks, instead, money for payroll, instead had just come through the drive-thru and cashed a bunch of checks where the payee had been whited out and her name had been put in place instead. And I'm like, you didn't cash those checks, did you? And they're like, yeah, of course we cashed them. And so what had just happened in, in the span of 20 minutes was this woman, Renee Hardy had taken the checks that um, we thought were going out to pay vendors used whiteout, and then um, wrote her name over top of the payees, cashed them. And I've never seen her since. She took 82000 of the 84000 that we had in the bank. That obviously wasn't a good day, but, you know, I, I remember it vividly. I, w I was mad initially, mad at the bank, 
you know, reviewed in my mind, you know, could we've done anything to stop her? And I don't think we could. Um, and then came to the quick realization that I had to go back to work because I had to talk to the vendors, you know, figure out ways to make money to pay for the, the money we lost and, and get back at it and, and, and grow from there. And, you know, fortunately we were able to, to, we, we didn't die from, from that, that wound and we were able to continue and growing, continue to grow. And we grew from, you know, the four people to 80 people and 30 million in sales and sold the company to, to H&R Block seven years, six years later. Yeah. Wow. And have you ever had times where you felt like giving up? Um, I don't know that I felt like giving up, but, you know, obviously I felt nervous and scared that, you know, the company might not make it. I remember counting month to month to month. Okay. Now we're in business three months. We're in business four months, five months, you know, and every month was a victory and, you know, having $15,000 in the bank. And, and you also have to realize that during this time, it wasn't like I was, I was living, you know, the, the high life I was sleeping on the floor, lived six guys in a three bedroom apartment. You know, if we went out during the weekend, it, we, we limited ourselves to 20 bucks. I mean, it was li- literally, I would, I would go to bars and, and eat the free food, drink, buy one beer for, for three bucks or whatever, and eat all the bar food. And I gained like 30 pounds. So yeah. So there were times I questioned everything, but I had, I had my goals and one of my goals was not to work for anybody else. Mm. So do you have a process for setting goals every year, even to this day, or do you have a, a meticulous process that you go through to make like, no, no, no. I mean, like my goal when I was getting started was I wanted to retire by the time I was 35 and I, I didn't have to be the, the richest guy, but I, I wanted to be able to live like a student, travel the world and party like a madman. And so I sold my first company when I was just turned 30 and I bought a lifetime pass on American Airlines and did just that. I, I quit for four years, you know, used my lifetime pass on American Airlines to fly. I didn't, didn't make it to Australia, but flew around the world and, and partied like a madman. And I did that for four years. And, and you know, after that, there, I would just look for different business opportunities and did, did well in a few of them. But then the Internet really started to take off and we saw the opportunity to, to really start putting audio and then video over the internet and took off, you know, started a company start called AudioNet and really were the first people to, to turn, you know, audio streaming into a business and then went into video and, and that took off as well. Mm, I see. I'm curious when it comes to growth as well, you, you talked about, you know, you guys had, um, you know, run, running, running really lean. Do are you, are you always big on when you're first starting your company, um, you know, in the early stages to sacrifice profit for growth? No, absolutely not. I mean, you, there, there's times where you have to grow. If you're early in the market and, you know, you don't have a lot of competition or any competition, then, then speed is what you need, right? You want to, you want to get ahead and try to own the market and it's okay to, to not, not necessarily do a, you know, to just gear for profits, but any other type of company, if you're a service company, if you're a basic operating company, you, you've got to gear for profits. You know, you've got to figure out how to sell and you've got to figure out how to make those sales profitable. There's never been a company that that's ever succeeded without sales. And at some point you have to be profitable. Mm, I see. And when it comes to competing, I know you talk a lot about competing. I've, I've read your book and it's, it's a great book, but I'm curious. Thank you. 
when it comes to competition, how much should you worry about the competition to what they're doing compared to just you just just not worrying? Because I know you love to compete. Oh no, you. Yeah, you've got to be aware, right? You've got to know your industry better than anybody. You've got to know your product, your your service, whatever it is you do. You've got to know, you know, not only your own abilities and your own products and service, but what your competition is doing, because otherwise you can't figure out how to kick their ass. You know, I, I always want to know what my competitors are up to. Now, I'm never intimidated by it and I never slow down, but, you know, how am I going to crush them if I don't know what they're doing? How am I going to crush them if I can't stay ahead of them? And in order to stay ahead, I got to I got to keep on grinding to to figure out, you know, not only how I can do what I'm doing better, not only how I can make my customers happier, but also how to anticipate what the competitors are going to do. Uh, you know, I, I remember one time after we had sold broadcast.com to Yahoo, mm. I was <laughs> I remember making a presentation and going, you know, if we do this deal, we were going to crush this, these competitors and, you know, we'll preempt them and, and they won't have a shot. And. And Yahoo got all upset with that. They're like, we don't think that way. I'm like, well, I do. <laughs> and and that's one of the reasons we we didn't get along after we after we sold to them. And I didn't stay there. But you know, I, I'm a big believer that yes, you've got to know. Not you've got to be the smartest person in the room when it comes to your product, service, and industry. And part of that is is knowing your competition as as much as you can inside and out. Mm, I see. Um, when it comes to scaling companies, this is something you're quite good at also as an investor and advisor. Um, I'm curious, when it comes to scaling companies, it comes down to people. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, it comes down to everything. You can have the best people in the world, and that's not enough if the product's not good. You can have the best product or service in the world, and that's not enough if the people aren't good. You know, I really try to say, you know, what are the things that are going to make me successful? What are the things that are going to make this business successful? What's the culture of the company so that the people I bring in, maybe they aren't the very best person that I could hire, but I could train them. They're adaptive. They want to learn. And so they fit in our culture and, and, and maybe individually they're not the best, but in aggregate as a group, we are as a company, the best. And so I I really try to take a holistic approach, but yeah, I mean, all things being equal, you want the best possible person. And then I also try to hire people that complement my skills. I don't need, you know, more Mark Cubans. I need people who do everything that I don't do and, and make me stronger. So the more complimentary you are to me, the better. And I also look for people who are stress reducers rather than stress increasers. You know, so often, particularly in startups, you get people that, that think, you know, there's no way the company can live without them. And those people usually aren't the ones that reduce stress. They're the ones that create stress. But on the flip side, if, if, you know, you work with somebody and things just get done, you know, you don't have to worry about them. And, you know, if you tell them to do A, B, and C, you know, they do it. And without telling you, they're already working on D, E, and F. Those are the type of people and that's the type of organization I want. Mm. And can you give us an example? Because, um, well, you know, we often hear about the founder, but uh, can you give us an example of like the best, one of the best hires you've ever made to help you grow one of your companies? A lot of them, um, I mean, salespeople that have really, you know, figured out new ways to sell technology people. There's just, you know, it's never just one, you know, there's so many things that have to get done in a startup and the founder, I always tried to lead by example and, and, and be supportive and, and then try to turn over responsibility as early as humanly possible. And if someone's good, I, you know, I give them as much autonomy as possible. I mean, literally, 
you know, I'd have to go through a list and there's hundreds of them, not, not just one. And, and, and that's a good sign. Yeah. Gotcha. When it comes to when you're in the early stages, how do you instill a good sense of, of teamwork in your culture? I, I try to find out what's important to everybody when I hire them, you know, to some people, they just want a job and they want to get home by five o'clock to be with their family. And if the job I'm hiring them for, that's okay. Then, then I'm fine with that. Other people, you know, they're ambitious and, you know, they, they want to rise up the ladder as much as possible. Others like the thrill of being part of a startup. Others are there as a stepping stone to do their own deal. And so I, I try to understand what's important to them. And because if I can convey my vision to them, that, you know, where I see things going and then convey to them how they fit into there and, and what I can do to help them reach their goals, then people tend to be happier at work. And then I also try to make it fun. You know, what are the things we can do that, you know, make it so people like going to, to work rather than dread going to work. Mm. And do you think that that's a bad thing necessarily hiring somebody that, that want to use it as a stepping stone to work with you to, to then go off and want to do their own thing? Do you think that's a bad thing? No. Or do you not encourage it or? It, it just depends on, as long as you know up front, you know, sometimes you, you don't want the person to leave. Um, because they contribute a lot, but typically, you know, I, I try to look at the longer term. If somebody doesn't want to be there for whatever reason, then that's far worse. But if they go off and start their own and hopefully com- complement you rather than compete with you, then, you know, there's a future business partner out there for you that understands your organization, understands me, and I understand them. And so there's an opportunity to work together. It doesn't work out every time, but, you know, if, again, if you, if you know, what's happening going in, then it usually can end up positive. Mm, I see. And how, what, what are your thoughts on equity? How protective should founders be? Uh, and I always give equity. I always, always, always give equity that has to be vested. So I won't just give it and say, Hey, welcome to the company. Here's, you know, a hundred shares. And if you leave tomorrow, you get to keep them. Won't ever do that. You know, so depending on the position and, and you know, where the company is in its life cycle, it might vest over two years. It might vest over four years. But yeah, I want every single person to be a part owner of the company. And you know, that when we um, sold Broadcast.com to Yahoo, out of the 339 employees, 300 at least on paper were millionaires. And you know, that's a great feeling. When I sold my first company, we took a million dollars that we didn't have to, and allocated it to the equity of all the of all the employees because you know. I don't have success without their success. And so I, I really, I really think it's important to share equity. Mm, I see. And when it comes to making decisions, um, like, like how do you make decisions? Do you, do you, do you, still have, do you still have mentors now? I'm really curious around that as well. No, I, I've never was a big mentor guy. I mean, I always was kind of on the job training, learn it yourself, you know, do whatever I have to do to, to figure it out type person. Um, and so I haven't been big on mentors and I get a lot of requests to be a mentor, but you know, I'll help people where I can, but I, I just, I really try to encourage people to, to go through the process of learning on their own. Maybe it takes them a little bit longer, but it gets them in the habit of, of how to figure out problems. And, and that's what I do. I, you know, when, when there's a problem, when there's an issue, you know, it's my job to try to figure out how to solve it. And that's, you know, that's how I try to do things. Mm, I see. That's really interesting. So throughout your career as an entrepreneur, you, there's 
there hasn't been a but of course like board of advisors uh that you learn from in, in that aspect though advisory yeah board, oh, absolutely yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll be an advisor, and particularly, you know, if I invest money in a company, I'm going to be there to help. You know, I, mentoring to me is someone who's always there all the time. When when I invest in the company, my my approach is, you know, I want weekly or biweekly reports. Bad news first, because if I've invested in you, I expect good news. I expect you to be successful. But every company runs into problems, and the the best use for my time is to be available to help solve your problems. Mm. So, at what stages do you think? founders should set up an advisory board? It, it just depends on the company. Some some companies think that you should do it right away. I, you know, I also think it depends on how much money you raise. The more money, if, if it's just your money, you know, I, I would just have a, a general network of people that if you feel comfortable calling them, call them. Um, I wouldn't necessarily set up a, an advisory board. Honestly, and, and I've never in any of my companies at the beginning set up an advisory board. And, and even towards the end, it wasn't until we went public mm. that we had to set up a um, a board. So I, I tend to, to try to keep it open-ended and, and general, but, you know, I also never went out there and raised 20, 30, 40 million dollars. And so if, you, if you've raised a lot of money, chances are the people who have given you the money are going to want to be in an advisory position just, just to keep an eye on and, and, and to help you. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, and you know, I think I'm I'm the exception rather than the rule. So it, so each entrepreneur's got to figure it out themselves. Mm. And what are your thoughts on you know bootstrapping, being bootstrapped forever versus versus raising capital? Do you think you always have to raise capital, or do you? No, the exact opposite. Sweat equity is the best equity. You you got to do everything possible not to raise capital because the minute you take someone else's money, then all of a sudden in, instead of just your obligation being to the success of the company or your customers or your employees, you, you add a, another perspective where, okay, how am I going to make the bank or how am I going to wake my, make my investors happy? And, you know, and if, if their perspective differs from yours, you, you know, you may have other problems that, that you didn't bargain for. So wherever possible, I always, always, always recommend that you bootstrap. So if you've got a growing company that's growing reasonably fast, you've been running it for, let's say three or four years, you're quite profitable, got great net profits. You can see it growing, you know, month on month. Do you, would you advise for that founder to raise capital or just keep doing what you're doing? No, if business is that predictable, then you can borrow money, which, you know, if you're profitable, you can pay back. And so if you need equipment or you need to enter a new market, um, again, as long as it's predictable and you're very confident, then just go to the bank, you know, and with the track record, you should be able to borrow. I think people make, I think entrepreneurs make the mistake of thinking that raising money is a win. Raising money is not an accomplishment, right? It's actually, you know, a negative in, in a lot of respects. And, and people get excited. Oh, I just raised money. I got investors. I've got these people that are giving me money. Well, now, you know, that's when the work starts and that's where your obligation extends. And, you know, there, there's enough work, enough obligation in, in running a startup or, or a young company, you know, that, you know, investors just complicate. So whenever possible, even if it means you're not growing quite as quickly as you possibly can, or maybe you're not quite as profitable as you might be with more money, having that control and owning 100% of the stock, that, that has incredible value. But what about speed? Yeah, but, you know, speed to do what, though? 
right? You know, just speed for the sake of speed doesn't really accomplish anything. Like when you think about what comes with speed, there's uncertainty, there's growing plant pains, there's, you know, running into situations you've never run into before. There's getting competitors, um, visibility, visibility with competitors. So trying to go too fast, unless you're opening up a market and, and you basically have a monopoly on that market uh, or just some critical advantage, speed is, isn't necessarily an, an advantage. You know, just going fast to go fast usually puts, gets companies out of business rather than makes them, you know, gets them to a new level of profitability. Mm. So I don't know if you can comment on this, but, you know, I'd love to hear your take if you, if you can on your thoughts sure. on like how, how Uber is, how far, how aggressive Uber is on growth. They, you know, they don't make money, but they are so right. extremely bullish. I, I mean, I, I know Travis, I actually funded his previous company yep. and you know, the beauty, the beauty of Travis is that he'll run through a wall to be successful. The problem with Travis is that he'll run through a wall to be successful. He, he, Travis didn't know when to slow down. He wants to own the world. And because they've got such a world changing concept where they did have a world changing concept seven years ago, it's been easy for him to raise money. And he's used that to try to you know take over the world. Well, to my point where the growth was, you know, somewhat organic in the United States and in some other places, he's, he's been very successful when he's tried to just grow for the sake of growth, just to dominate the world. He's had problems and trying to grow so quickly has led to all the PR nightmares he's had recently. You know, the culture of his company, the issues that he's had with local governments or, or national governments, all those things were things he could have avoided if he slowed down. You know, now he may think that Lyft and Didi and others may come after him if he didn't go, and that's a different discussion. But, you know, Uber is the perfect example where you have a world-changing concept that's amazing, and rather than, you know, trying to be the best company you possibly can be and, and treating your customers and employees the best you possibly can, he's dug a hole for himself that he's got to dig out right now. Now, I think he'll figure it out, but, you know, I would have done it completely differently. Mm, interesting. Uh, look, um, I'm super mindful of your time. We have to work towards wrapping up. Um, this has been a great conversation. Just would love to hear a couple of things. What's exciting you right now? And can you tell us more about Cyberdust and, and some other things you're working on that excite you? Sure. Right now, I, I mean, I'm read, literally, no lie, reading a book, Machine Learning for Dummies. And yeah, machine learning, deep learning, neural networks, there's so much that they're going to change the nature of work. They're, it's kind of the new internet for me. You know, in the past, we would use technology to be descriptive. Um, and then we started using um, technology to be predictive, we used algorithms and if this, then that, you know, if this, do that. Now with, with deep learning, AI and machine learning, et cetera, it's becoming pre um, prescriptive, meaning you can feed information in and the machines now are starting to think and will give you not only suggestions, but strong recommendations on what to do that that's earth shattering that that's going to change everything so if you don't understand machine learning and deep learning now's the time to get into it dig into it and and get ahead before everybody else does um as far as other things like you know we've changed the name of cyberdust to dust messaging you know i think privacy is critically important if you download the app and you can add me at mcuban m-c-u-b-a-n and hit me with a question and I'll do my best to answer or try to answer it. But I think in this day and age, you, you've got to shrink your digital footprint and, 
and dust messaging is like it, it takes messaging and makes it like a face-to-face -face conversation. There's absolutely no record of it. Nobody can get the information. And to me, that, you know, that's important in business. Awesome. Well, look, uh, Mark, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. And uh, yeah, yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, I'll speak to you soon. You got it. Thanks so much. It was fun. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.